Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. We're going to be talking about the mission of the church, and the title of today's message is How to Stay on Mission. How to stay on mission. And uh, because the church, if, if it doesn't stay on mission, stay on the task God has given us, it can be confusing and it can throw people off. I know for me, I was thinking this week of a lot of times I've been confused and I've been thrown off. And it was just kind of like, well, what story do I want to share with you about times when I'm confused and thrown off? And I came to this one time in particular. Uh, for me, for six years, I worked at a coffee shop and I was a barista. Now, those of you who are not as coffee inclined, that means I'm the guy who made all the fancy drinks. I made the mochas, the lattes, the cappuccinos, the, the macchiatos, the uh, blended drinks. What are those things called? Frappuccinos. You know, so like I, I made all of those things. That was kind of my job. And so I'd be back there making drinks. And what I learned over those six years is that people are a creature of habit when it comes to their coffee in the morning, right? Like we all like our coffee a certain way. We like it all black. We like it with a little cream and a little sugar. We like it with mostly cream and, and mostly sugar and just a little bit of coffee. And how do I know that? Because I watch you guys out there. I see what you're doing. You're taking those blue creamers and you're like, it'll be a few minutes. And you're just pouring those creamers. And then it's like a boop, little bit of coffee. And you're like, I'm set to go. I'm good. You know, like, you know, I, I, notice, I know what's going on. Like, I know what it's all about. But like we have, we like it hot. We like it cold. We like it fancy. You know, like we, we like our coffee a very particular way. And what I've learned over the last, uh, what I learned working at that coffee shop was that people are creatures of habit. We're all creatures of habit when it comes to this. And so because I worked there so long, I was used to what our regulars would have. And the way that our barista bar was situated, I could look over the counter where people ordered, but it also had this huge glass wall and I could see the cars when people would drive in. So I memorized what time people would come in and get their coffee, what cars they were driving. I started memorizing everybody's drink because they would come in every single day. And so I might have a line of drinks and I'm making the drinks and I'm doing my thing and I look up and I see a car, or I see the regular customer come in and I start their drink right away. And while I might be working on those other drinks, after I see their ticket come up, I can hand the regular his drink and be like, here you go. And what was sometimes really kind of annoying is they would grab their drink and they'd be like, oh, my drink? Like they were accepting an award. They'd be like, oh, my drink? Like there was an air of superiority. I think they really liked it. And they would be like, oh, well, apparently I come here too much, <laughs> you know? And so then they'd say, see you, see you tomorrow. And they would leave and be on their way. But there would be times I'd be back there and I'm making their drinks and I see them come in and I start making their regular drink and I'm doing, doing the thing back there. And then all of a sudden I see their ticket pop up and it's not their normal drink. I'd be like, uh, what's going on? You feeling okay? Like, what's happening here? And I'd be like, this isn't your normal drink. I would be confused. I'd be thrown off. I'd be like, I'm confused. I'm thrown off. Like, why, why are you getting something different? And they'd be like, oh, well, I, I had coffee. I had an early morning meeting. I was already here. Or sometimes what they would say to me is, um, I'm picking this up for my spouse, or this is for my coworkers. And I'd be like, oh, okay, that makes sense, right? And so I share all of that with you to say this, when the church gets off track, when the church is not doing what it should be about, when the church is in a way ordering the wrong drink, we should notice. And the people around us should notice as well. And we should go, oh, wait, that's not for us. That's for somebody else. See, if you want to avoid drifting from the mission that God has for us, his church, we need to know what our mission is. Because the reality is, 
we can easily, the church can easily get off track. How do I know this? Because I've talked to some of you where the church got a little off track. It became about other things. It became about opinions. It became something that it wasn't really supposed to be. And you're like, this church has gotten off mission and I need to leave that church to make sure that I'm a part of a body of believers who are on mission, the mission that Jesus has given us. But see, to even begin to understand what our mission is, we have to understand who God has made us to be. Even in fact, 1 Peter 2.9 says that he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we were once sinners doing our own thing, loving the darkness, wanting nothing to do with his light. But God and his love for us, we have turned from our sins, repented of those sins, turned to Jesus and have been given grace. And now we're living for him. We are now children of the light. We have a new way of living. Jesus has saved us from sin and death, and we are to look and be more like Jesus. But not only are we to look and be more like Jesus, we're also saved to be a part of God's mission. God himself has given us an actual task, an actual mission, and we need to make sure that we are clear on what that mission is. Because again, it's so easy for us to get off track, ordering the wrong things, being about the wrong things, And God hasn't called us to be about those things. In fact, if you want to know what our mission is, God has actually given it to us in his word. He's told us what our mission is, and that is the great commission. In fact, in Mark chapter 16, Jesus even says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. God has given us a mission and the church's mission is to preach the gospel, to take the good news of Jesus to the whole world. Why? Because people need to be saved. Now, of course, this this commission comes with two assumptions. And the first one is that the world needs saving. Jesus knows that the world needs saving. They don't just need to be repaired. They need to be redeemed. That's why Jesus would refer to his coming as a rescue mission. In fact, in uh, Luke 19, Jesus even says, for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. He didn't say uh, people who are far from God, they're just the unchurched or they're searchers or they're seekers. He said they are lost. And that word has some heaviness with it. When the church loses that, that idea of lostness that Jesus had, the church loses its urgency and we begin to experience mission drift. To Jesus, the gospel was not just good news. It was essential news. People need the gospel because people need to be saved. There's a second assumption with all of this, and that is not only did Jesus say that people need to be saved, but that he is essential to that salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't say he's a way of many ways or a way of three ways. He said, I am the one and only way to get to God. See, when the early church lived on mission, they preached this gospel to the world. And the gospel they preached said that if you want to be right with God, Jesus was essential. Peter even said in Acts chapter four, salvation is found in no one else. For there, is no, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. John said in 1 John 5, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Paul even said it this way in 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God 
and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. And so the early church did not preach a gospel as, well, hey, just have a little bit of Jesus in your life and you're going to be okay. You know, they, they preached that Jesus was necessary for our lives. People need the gospel, but not only do people need the gospel, the gospel needs a people. The gospel needs a community that will take it to the world. See, all throughout this series, we've been saying um, that, that quote from Jesus in Matthew 16 that said, um, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it was, we're saying that, that, that confession, Jesus saying that comes from Peter's confession that Jesus is the son of God and Jesus goes on that confession, I'm going to build my church. And so Jesus wants to redeem the world through the church, and he wants to use people like you and me to do that. Jesus wants to use his church, wants to use his people to help out on that mission. Jesus wants us to be a part of his story and what he is doing. I think about, you know, just last month, we, we celebrated Christmas, and we're reminded of Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus, right? And, and, you know, Mary had, she was a virgin, but was pregnant with Jesus. And in that culture, Joseph had a lot of things, a lot of rights Mary didn't have. And, and he could have done a lot of things, but he decided to stay with Mary. See, Jesus would have come with or without Joseph, but Joseph chose to stay. And because of that, Joseph was able to be a part of what God was doing, being able to be Jesus's earthly father. I think about in Revelation, you've got an angel circling the world and he's telling the gospel one last time so that people can repent and be saved. To me, that's a pretty cool way to get the gospel out there. (laughs) That seems a little bit more effective and a lot better than a bunch of messy, messed up people trying to reach other messy, messed up people. But here's the idea. Jesus wants us to be a part of what he is doing. See, we need to be a church that will knock down walls instead of hide behind walls. And we need to take the gospel to the world. Jesus wants his church to gather where we pursue holiness and we worship him. That's what we talked about last week. He wants us to gather, but then he wants us to scatter to show people the impact that God has had on our lives and why we worship him. And so the example that I see of a church being on mission is in Acts chapter 11. And so if you have a Bible today, turn to Acts chapter 11 We're going to be specifically looking at verses 19 through 26 today. If you don't have a Bible, you probably have a smartphone. So I'd encourage you to download the YouVersion Bible app. And uh, there you can uh, go to the More tab, the Events tab. You'll find Awakened Church Live. Click on that. You can follow along with our outline, the verses, everything. You can take notes there as well. But while you're downloading the app, finding your way to Acts chapter 11, I want to give you a little context of what's going on. Because the church that we're going to be talking about is the church in Antioch. And I believe the church in Antioch is the second most important church in all of the Bible. But the Bible talks about all kinds of different churches. And and even in Acts, it talks about different churches. Paul, when he wrote his letters uh, that we read about, is written to other churches. Uh, One of the most important churches, I believe, is the church in Jerusalem. That's the most important church, I believe, in the Bible. And this church was established shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. But not long after this church began, they started facing some persecution. And because of that persecution, the believers started scattering. And some of these believers, they scattered some 300 miles north to a city called Antioch. Now, just as a point of reference, that'd be like today if we were like, hey, let's start a church 300 miles north from here. And so we get in the parking lot and we just start walking north. We'd go past Bowling Green, we'd go past Louisville, 
right? Did I said it right? I think I said enough Southern there. Louisville, right? Where I'm from is Louisville. There you go. So you go past Louisville, then you go past Cincinnati, and you end up in a city called Dayton, Ohio. That is a long walk. Did somebody say yeah? And somebody said ew? I think we had both at the same time. <laughs> I'm sure that's some of what the believers, they, they got to Antioch and they're like, ew, you know, like some were probably like, yeah. And some were like, ew, this is gross, you know? But we would end up in Dayton, Ohio. And so that's a long walk. These, these believers, they scattered 300 miles north, get to Antioch. Now, Antioch is referred to by some commentators as the ancient Las Vegas. This is a place known for its chariot races. It was known for people's pursuit of pleasure. Like, this is a place where you went. If you wanted to do some things and you didn't want anybody to find out about it, this is where you went. I think maybe they had that phrase, what happens in Antioch stays in Antioch, and we just kind of copied it. You know, I don't know. But, but there was a lot of immorality going on in this place. But Antioch was also a melting pot. It's a place where the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, the Arabs, the Persians, they all lived there. And they all worshiped these different gods. And so what I want you to see is that Antioch is a very dark and depraved place. But yet, it's where these Jewish people scattered and started this church in Antioch. And so there's some things that I believe we can learn from this church that we can apply today so that we can make sure that we are a church on mission as well. So let's read our text, starting in verse 19 says this. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution over Stephen, so that's the reason why they're all scattering. They're going different places. Traveled as far as Phoenicia, that's a place. Cyprus is another place. And Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that can be translated to the Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Verse 23, when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who we know to later become Paul. Verse 26, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, when we read this text, we see a number of firsts in this special church. We see that this was the church where they were first called Christians. We see this is a church where they were the first ones to kind of cross ethnic boundaries to include Gentiles. It was the first church to intentionally pursue missionary church planning, and Antioch was a church on mission. In fact, today I want to show us just a couple of things, two things from this text that I think will help us make sure that we aren't ordering the wrong drink, we aren't trying to be something we're not, we're staying on the actual task that God has given us. And the first one is that a church on mission preaches a gospel that can save anyone. A church on mission preaches a gospel that could save anyone. See, the Christians in Antioch believed people needed Jesus. And so in verse 20 and 21, we see that a great number of Hellenists or Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. 
See, these believers in Antioch, they weren't preaching some philosophy. They weren't preaching their own opinions, their own thoughts, their own ideas. Uh, They weren't going off mission. They were just normal, everyday people sharing the good news of Jesus. See, what's really cool to me that stood out to me about this passage is that the names of the people sharing this good news, it's not mentioned. It's not talked about at all. Like all it says is that they were people from Cyprus and Cyrene, which honestly is so cool to me. Because I think oftentimes we we go, oh, I can't wait until this famous person gets saved because, man, if they get saved, man, the gospel is going to keep going out. That's cool. Hey, I'm all for the celebrities getting saved, the, the, the celebrities turning to Jesus. Like, I'm all for that. But we don't need them necessarily to preach the gospel. I think sometimes we go, oh, I got to bring all my unsaved friends to church. Well, that's okay. That's good to do. But you also have a relationship with them. You can preach the gospel to them. You've been impacted by what God has done in your life. What's stopping you from sharing that good news with them? We are all called to share the good news. And what we're seeing here is that these people from Cyprus and Cyrene, they have been impacted by the gospel of Jesus and they're calling others to follow Jesus, to turn their lives and their hearts over to him. It was in Antioch that we start seeing the gospel moving from being just from the Jews to being a message that any culture can embrace. See, up until this point, these, uh, there were people that only just preached to the Jews. Again, in verse 19, that's why it says, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And by the way, that's the call of evangelism. It was first to the Jews and then to others. I mean, even Jesus earlier on, uh, he even said that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But it was in Antioch that they started taking this good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. And they preached a gospel that any culture could receive. And so the church in Jerusalem, they heard about this and they sent Barnabas to check it out. To make sure that they were preaching the true gospel. And not mixing in their Gentile ways and their traditions. They want to make sure that these Gentiles were truly following the gospel of Jesus. And and leaving their old way of life and the gods that they used to serve. And when Barnabas got there, he saw the evidence of God's blessing and grace, and he loved it. In fact, that's what he's getting at in verse 23. It says that he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Barnabas was an encourager. A lot of times when you're reading uh, the Bible, you'll see Barnabas and you'll see that word exhort or, or some sort of encouragement that he was. He was an encourager. And just as a side note, like, I think it's so great to have people in your life that are encouragers, right? Like, we should all have a Barnabas, and we should all be a Barnabas to someone, encouraging them, speaking truth to them, exhorting them a little bit. And that's what Barnabas is doing with these believers. He saw the beauty of God's grace going to a people that had never really connected with God before. They received the gospel regardless of their background. The truth of salvation through Jesus resonated with these Gentiles and they wanted it. See, grace through faith alone was a shock to these Gentile hearts. They were willing to repent of their sins, leave their old lives behind and receive this gift of salvation. Now that's a gospel that can be taken to all the world. That's a gospel that can be embraced by every culture. 
See, we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of Jesus. And no one knew this better than Paul. See, I don't know what you've done in your past, but I bet you on your resume, killing Christians is not on it, right? But it was on Paul's. Paul understood and knew about the undeserved grace of Jesus and that it could save anyone. And at Antioch, God prepared Paul to release the gospel that had released him. In fact, I love what he would say to a church planner named Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 15, he says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who believe in him and receive eternal life. Listen, the church is at its best when it believes even the worst of sinners can be saved. Years and years and years ago, there was a man who lived in Italy. His name was Antonio Stradivarius. And some of you might be familiar with that last name because he was a man who created violins. He made violins. And uh, he made violins that were very sought after. But Antonio Stradivarius, he was a poor man. He couldn't make his violins out of the best wood. And so what he had to do to make his violins was go down to the harbor and get this waterlogged wood that had been thrown away, and he used that wood for his violins. And what no one knew at this time was that the microbes in the water ate at the fibrous infrastructure of the wood and created chambers that music could resonate in. See, what Antonio Stradivarius did was he took what no one wanted, and it became something that everybody wanted. That's what the gospel does. It takes broken, wicked, ruined, messy, imperfect people and it redeems them and claims them for Jesus because the gospel can save anyone. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, like myself, you are a walking, breathing billboard of what the grace of God can do, what the gospel can do in your life. That's something that you can take. You can be those people from Cyprus and Cyrene, and you can take that out and say, I was once living in darkness, doing my own thing, sinning and doing, living for myself, but God, and now I am a child of the light. I'm living for Jesus. You are a walking, breathing billboard of what the gospel and the grace of God can do in your life. But here's the thing. The church doesn't just preach this grace. The church puts this grace on display. And this is our last thought for today, and that is the gospel can reconcile everyone. The gospel can reconcile everyone. A church on mission practices that kind of gospel, a gospel that reunites people. In fact, again, let's look at verse 20. It says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Again, like we said, these are just normal, everyday people. They started preaching to the Gentiles. And uh, this is like the first time this is happening in the city of Antioch. This is the first time that this church is crossing racial boundaries with the gospel. Antioch was a prejudiced city like most cities are. It was a very segregated city with each race having its own part and staying in its own little place. 
And along comes all these believers and they start uh, crossing racial boundaries and they start meeting together and everyone is united, even though they're different, everyone is united and they're loving it and they're enjoying their time together. And the reality is this is a church where people are starting to see it in Antioch and they've never seen that before, which might explain why these believers in Antioch were given a term that no one had ever heard before, which was Christians. That's what verse 26 is all about. It says this is the place where they were first called Christians. What's interesting is that Antioch is famous for kind of coming up with nicknames for people. Some of my closest friends, I have nicknames for them. I call them certain names, right? Even in my family, that's how I grew up. Uh, My family had nicknames. We all gave each other nicknames. Even my family right now, we have nicknames for one another. But Antioch was famous for this. In fact, their emperor, Julian, um, he had this really long goatee and it all came to like a point. And so the nickname they gave him is they were like, hey, this is our emperor, the goat. Like that's the nickname that they gave him. But I want you to know, Christian here is not a friendly term. I want you to know that it's a term that Jesus never used. It was a term that the early church never used. It was a term that the Jews never used. In fact, any time that a Christian, uh, any time that that was mentioned, they they were called uh, believers, followers of Jesus, disciples. They were called saints. I like this one because it sounds like Star Wars, followers of the way, right? (laughs) But that's what they called themselves. That was it. They never called themselves Christians. Christians were first called this by unbelievers in Antioch, and it was a derogatory term. And so these unbelievers, they see these followers of Jesus doing things that that believers would do, and they see these people getting together the way that they are, loving one another, caring for one another, loving each other, even though they're diverse, even though they're different, they're all coming together, loving one another, and, and all these unbelievers are looking at this, and they're going, who are these people? Loving and caring for each other the way that they are. Oh, those are those Christ-like people. Those are those Christians. That's who they are. You know, that suff- the, the suffix I-A-N could be translated from the Greek to mean a slave or a follower of Jesus. They're like, oh, those are those followers of Jesus. They're committed to Jesus. They're following him. Those are those Christians. See, from the congregation to the leadership, these were people that modeled reconciliation among men that gave uh, the possibility of reconciliation with God. And I believe this is the message that God wanted to give out, get out. I think that's why Antioch is a church that we can look at. Because Antioch was a church that would send out missionaries that would change the world. And I believe that the reason why we can look at this church is because I believe this is a church that God wants modeled in the world. Something else that stood out to me as I was reading it this week is that it's, I think, significant that Paul came out of this church because Paul never planted a mono-ethnic church. Paul always planted a a multi-ethnic church. It would have been easier for him to plant a mono-ethnic one, but Because multi-ethnic churches are messy. That's the reason why we have Ephesians, we have Galatians, we have Romans. But Paul would plant a multi-ethnic church because he understood that if you're going to convince people that anyone can be reconciled to God, you've got to put the grace of God on display by the way that he has reconciled us to each other. In fact, I love how Paul put it in Ephesians 2. He said, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. 
He united Jew and Gentile into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Christ has reconciled both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, through his death on the cross. And the hostility that we had with one another is no more. See, walls come down when the cross is lifted up. And know this, that God hates separate but equal. I believe God wants us to look like the church in Antioch. Because I believe God has always had it on his heart to want to reconcile people to himself from every tribe, tongue, nation, people group into one family. If you want to know what the proof text of that is, John chapter 17 is it. It's a prayer Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross. He's praying for the unity of his disciples and he's praying for our unity. And he's like, as my people are united, may that be a testimony to the world that I have existed, that I live, that I came to do what I said I was coming to do. In fact, I know what many generations are going to say, what, I've all, what I'm saying, and I'm sure they probably said it here in Acts. But we're living in some very divisive days. And I don't just mean in our nation. When you look around our world, we are divided today. And it's funny to me because they always say, well, we're super connected. And even though in this era of connectivity, we are more divided than we ever have been. We're divided geographically, culturally, racially, economically, socially, between political lines. But here's what we need to understand from Jesus. Jesus is on mission to unite people to himself. And in the midst of this divided world, Jesus wants to make us one family, make us brothers and sisters in Christ. I believe in Antioch and even in our day in Clarksville, Tennessee, it's in our diversity and in our unity that makes this such a beautiful picture. See, we might have so many differences have different backgrounds, different experiences. But Jesus wants to bring us together. And because of Jesus, we are now one family. Jesus is our commonality. Jesus is the thing that brings us together. See, the Antioch believers showed the world something beautifully different about Christianity. The church in Antioch was like an embassy to God's kingdom. They gave the world a picture of what Jesus's kingdom will look like one day. See, these individuals with different backgrounds displayed unique values, showed a unique way of life, and preached a unique message. Jesus wants a church on mission. He wants a church that will practice and preach the gospel, and the world needs it. Amen? They need it. We have to come together. Because it's not about drawing a crowd and, oh, look how big we are and all that. It's about putting the kingdom of God on display for the world to see. So we need to commit to this rhythm of gathering where we worship, we pursue holiness, we gather together, but then we scatter and we show people the impact that God has had on our lives and why we worship him. Because we know this, if we could get grace right in here, it helps get God out there. In fact, I want to close with a story today that I read. There was a church in New York City built around the 1700s And uh, it was a a place that uh, a lot of famous people went and worshipped, and it was called St. Paul's Chapel. And uh, it was said that even George Washington worshipped there on the day that he was inaugurated to be president. So a lot of famous people worshipped there, and it was a, a church that stood a very long time. But to me, what's really interesting about it is even though the New York skyline very much changed and, 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 and kind of, you know, mutated into what it was, that church stood there. It stayed there. 
But then on 9-11, when those twin towers came crashing down, that church remained unharmed. No windows were blown out. Nothing happened to it. It was still standing there. But on 9-11, that church received a new mission. See, as first responders rushed in to try to rescue people, they became exhausted, tired, hungry. And so St. Paul's Chapel became a place of refuge. It's where they could get food. They could get sleep. They could clean up. They could grieve. They could mourn. They could get restored. And they would then get back out on mission to try to rescue people. See, I believe that's what Jesus wants his church to look and to be. We are on mission to tell the good news of what Jesus has done in our lives. We're not meant to go, well, this is just for me. I'm safe. I'm good. Who cares who heads to hell? I'm good. That's not what we're supposed to be about. You've been impacted. You've been forgiven. You've experienced God's grace. So share it with those around you. And so here's your mission. If you choose to accept it, it's this. Who has God put in your life that you need to share the gospel with? Be those people from Cyprus and Cyrene. Who is it that God has put in your life? Ask God this week. God, who have you put in my life? Maybe for you, it's just your neighbors. Like, uh, I know my neighbors, they, they live like fools, you know? Or, and so maybe what you need to do is you need to just come in and show them what a family following Jesus looks like. You don't need to come in and be like, this is everything you do wrong. Let me beat you with the Bible. But it's just simply showing them what a follower of Jesus looks like. Maybe it's your family. Talk to a lot of people who go, man, my family doesn't know Jesus. I'm closer to the people in this church than my own family. But maybe for you, your mission is that you need to show the gospel. You need to share with your family what a person following Jesus looks like. Maybe it's somebody at work. I know they don't pay you to share the gospel at work. But what you can do is you can take that coworker out to coffee, take him out to lunch, invite him over for dinner one night. Share them, show them what a follower of Jesus looks like. Whether you're in college, high school, middle school, wherever you're at, pray about, ask, what does a follower of Jesus look like that would impact my school? You have a mission given to you by God. And we are to preach the gospel, to tell the good news of what Jesus has done in our lives, that we were once sinners, but God, with his great love for us, that while we were still sinners, wanted nothing to do with God, it's because of his grace, because of his son's sacrifice, we could be saved and we've been forgiven and restored and renewed and we are sons and daughter of the king. We are on mission to tell the good news of what Jesus has done. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.